everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. We are back with another episode of House Call, talking equity markets with UBS Asset Management. For today's conversation, glad to welcome back Jeremy Zirin, Senior Portfolio Manager of the Houseview Equity Portfolios and Head of the Private Client U.S. Equity Team. Glad to have with us as well Dominique Shager, UBS Asset Management's Senior Equity Investment Specialist. With that, Jeremy, Dom, welcome back to you both. Dom, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation. Thank you, Dan, and thank you again for having us on the show. We appreciate it. So, Jeremy... I don't know about you, but for me, the first half of 2023 has gone in a flash. So to get us started, I thought it would be helpful to remind the audience about what has impacted the market so far this year, from market expectations coming into the year to inflation, rate hikes, rate pauses, and the hype around artificial intelligence. Sure. Lots to dive in there, into there, Dom. It's, it's been a surprisingly strong first half of the year for stocks, you know, the S&P, 500 ended the first half of the year up 17% and through June, and uh, the rally has only continued so far in July. And I would put the market gain so far into four buckets, and some of which you know you just outlined, Dom. So uh, those would be you know, growth dynamics, the Fed's fight against inflation, artificial intelligence, and, and then lastly, simply the, the passing of some potential negative risk events that didn't transpire. So, so first on, on growth, you know, heading into the year, the biggest debate among economists was whether uh, or not the U.S. economy uh, would accelerate or, or I'm sorry, the, the biggest debate wasn't necessarily whether the economy would accelerate or decelerate, but rather how quickly growth uh, would slow given and whether we would have a hard or soft landing as the impact of significant interest rate hikes from the Fed began to be felt. And so, so this year, um, so far, the soft landing camp is clearly winning. You know, GDP growth was 2.6% in the fourth quarter of 2022, and it has only slowed to 2.0% in the first quarter of this year and seems to be tracking reasonably close to that for Q2. And most of this resiliency has been driven by stronger-than-expected job growth this year, fueling consumer spending, uh, we've had monthly non-farm payrolls expanding by an average of uh, 275,000 or so so far this year. The second, you know, the second narrative around inflation is that we've seen the pace of inflation slow during the course of the year, and the the Fed has accordingly slowed down the pace of interest rate hikes before they actually skipped raising rates at its last meeting in June. You know, third, the excitement around AI and specifically generative AI has clearly been a huge driver of stock returns, particularly over the last you know, couple of months and within a select group of what we'll call sort of AI winners. Uh, but even more broadly, the, the price-to-earnings ratio of the S&P 500 tech sector has increased from 20 times earnings at the start of the year uh, to 28 times earnings today. So in other words, we've seen a, a 40% increase in the valuation of tech stocks over the past six months, and, and I'd argue much of that increase is the result of, of rising expectations for artificial intelligence. And then finally, there, there's the old but wise saying on Wall Street that markets climb the, the wall of worry, and I'd say that uh, this year has, has added even more credence to that adage. Yeah. In addition to the growth and inflation data that I just cited, you know, we should also realize that we've had a 
regional bank crisis that didn't ultimately materialize into a full-blown credit crunch, as was widely feared. We had a debt ceiling battle in D.C. that didn't result into a U.S. government bond default. And more recently, we've even seen some signs of thawing of U.S.-China relations with you know, senior leaders of both governments meeting. And so, you know, uh, recapping sort of what's happened this year, there's been, you know, a lot of dominoes have fallen, you know, uh, fallen to the to the right side uh, for investors. And uh, we'll see if we can keep that going in the second half. So, Jeremy, just over one year ago, U.S. inflation hit a 40-year high, marking 9.1% year over year. Since then, we've seen headline inflation fall about two-thirds to now 3% year-over-year as of the last estimate. However, core inflation is still at 4.8%. From your perspective, does this further support the narrative for a soft landing? And what do you think we can expect from the Fed in the coming months? I would say that while the market seems to be increasingly pricing in the soft landing outcome, in part due to the decline that we've seen in inflation and a view that the Fed is almost done, I'm not entirely convinced that that will be the case. First, and as you mentioned, core inflation is still running quite hot at nearly 5%. And we need to distinguish between headline and core. And, you know, headline inflation includes the more volatile food and energy components of prices. And the Fed doesn't have a lot of influence over those price categories. So the good news is that the last CPI report you know, we're, we did see headlines fall to 3.0% on a year-on-year basis, as you mentioned. But remember that year-over-year figures tell you as much about where prices were a year ago as they tell you about current prices. And remember back in June of 2022, oil prices averaged $114 a barrel, and the national average price for a gallon of gasoline was close to $5. Today, oil prices are in the 70s, and gas prices have dropped 30% to closer to 350 a gallon. So even with a 30% drop in gas prices, headline CPI was still at 3% above the Fed 2% mandate. And, you know, core inflation, which trips up the impact of the drop in energy prices, was closer to 5%. So, you know, putting that all together, I think the Fed may have won a few battles in the fight against inflation but it's premature to announce that they've won the war. In terms of what's next, I think it's highly likely that the Fed will raise rates by 25 basis points next week. That's been somewhat telegraphed. And we'll just have to wait and see what the next couple of inflation prints tell us to, to determine how the, Fed, or how the Fed reacts uh, in the second half of this year. But I think the important point to remember is that we're still a far way away from the Fed's 2% inflation target on most core measurements of inflation, which to me implies that high interest rates may weigh on economic growth for an uncomfortable length of time. Thank you. So moving on, year to date, the Russell 1000 value index has lagged the Russell 1000 growth by a staggering 24%. Can you walk us through some of the drivers behind this year's growth outperformance and from your perspective? Does this widening in valuations create some risk and maybe some opportunities for investors? Yeah, so to answer the first part of the question, I, I do think the disinflationary story has been part of it. Uh, value stocks typically do better when inflation and interest rates are rising, when economic growth is picking up steam, and when commodity prices are firm. And so far this year, we've seen inflation fall, which is generally positive for growth stocks. 
you know, long-term interest rate, you know, the, the 10-year Treasury bond uh, has fairly, been fairly stable between three and a half and four percent. And as I just mentioned, you know, energy prices have come down from you know their peak post the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. From a sector perspective, the biggest contributors to the growth stock indices are tech stocks, and energy and financials are the biggest swing factors that favor value. So in many regards, you know, it's been sector performance, which really has dominated the growth versus value debate so far this year. You know, tech is up nearly 50% after falling 30% last year on excitement regarding AI, which we talked about, you know, hopes that the Fed is done raising rates and some signs that key end markets like cloud infrastructure and personal computers and smartphones are close to bottoming. So that's been driving the growth side of the, of the U.S. market. On the other hand, you know, the, the value stocks have been weighed down by, you know, sectors such as energy and financials. We see, you know, pretty weak performance so far in financials, in part because of the, uh, you know, the regional bank crisis, which hit early in the second quarter. As a whole, the sector is, you know, barely positive for the year compared to that, you know, high teens gain that we've seen in the S&P 500. And energy stocks you know, are actually down 6% after rallying significantly last year. So where do we go from here? You know, in the short term, I would say it's a tough call. But over the next year and beyond, I'd give the edge to value of the growth. I think a lot of the benefits from AI and the rebound in tech earnings appears to be already reflected in their lofty valuations. And to put some you know numbers around that, you know, growth stocks now trade at nearly a 90% valuation premium to value where the long-term average valuation premium is closer to 35 to 40%. The valuations look pretty stretched for growth stocks. And then if you just look back over history, you know, both the level of valuations uh, as well as the pace of recent outperformance of growth over value has really only been surpassed twice in history. You know, first during the, the tech bubble in the late 90s and early 2000s, and then more recently at the end of 2021, and neither period ended particularly well for, for growth investors with value, you know, outperforming, you know, following those, you know, bursts of outperformance from growth that has resulted in, you know, high valuations for growth companies. So, you know, timing is always tricky. You don't know how long these trends can continue in the short term, but over the intermediate to long term, I'd look at for a, a broadening out of marketing, of market returns. Um, and, you know, compared to the very, very narrow tech and growth leadership that we've seen in the first half of the year. So earlier you mentioned um, consumer sentiment as playing a big role in um, some of the reasons why the market has outperformed this year. And according to the University of Michigan's Consumer Index, consumer sentiment jumped to July to the highest level since September 2021. Can you maybe walk us through what is fueling this positive consumer sentiment, and what does this mean for the market? Yeah, consumer sentiment definitely improved, but it's still fairly mixed picture for the consumer spending outlook going forward. And you cite the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, and it is at a level of 72, which has been improving and at almost a two-year high. But if you look back over the last 50 years or so, it's still at a below average level and even below its uh, pre-COVID level, where it was closer to uh, 100. But what's fueled it specifically, I think, is just the continued strong momentum we've seen in labor markets. And 
you couple that with the fact that equity prices have risen and that gas prices have declined. And so consumer surveys like this tend to be highly sensitive to high frequency and highly visible metrics like the equity market and, and gas prices. So with both of those being more favorable over the past few months, it's not surprising that directionally we've seen the consumer sentiment uh, indicators improve. You know, more broadly, I think the resiliency of consumer spending, you know, has been a key driver of the soft landing camp. And the recent data on retail sales this month point to, you know, consumer spending growing in around a one and a half or two percent range, you know, as it, you know, as it relates to its contribution to, to GDP growth. Um, so as long as the labor markets remain healthy, consumer spending should hold up. But I, I would say that that is a big if. We've seen some mixed signals regarding, you know, leading indicators that raise a few red flags, you know, such as capital spending intentions from Federal Reserve regional surveys, which sit near or at close to recessionary levels. And we've seen survey of hiring plans, particularly in manufacturing, look, look fairly weak. If you look at the National Purchasing Managers Index, uh, the IFMs, they remain at low levels, including the service-oriented indices, which, you know, have rebounded. Uh, you know, as uh, consumption has shifted from, from goods to services. And then finally, you know, another indicator we look at is, is temporary employment, which has been trending lower, which often portends more broad-based labor market loosening. So, and finally, I would say one other thing gives us some caution is that we'll soon have the expiration of the moratorium on student loan repayments. And, you know, while most economists believe this will only shave off a few tenths of a percentage point of disposable income for consumers, uh, it could just add to a potential deceleration of consumer spending, making it harder to interpret the core trends within the data. Thanks, Jeremy. On that last point, I'm sure many of us have enjoyed having a break for three years of not having to pay uh, student loans. But um, last week... Back to reality. (laughs) Back to reality. Last week, the big banks kicked off Q2 earnings season. Can you maybe share any insights that you heard so far, and maybe what are your expectations for the remainder of the season? Yeah, it's very early in earnings season. We've only had uh, 48 companies in the S&P 500 report as of today. But uh, my initial impression is that in many ways, this earnings season is looking a lot like the past two earnings seasons. And so what do I mean by that? You know, at a headline level, this will be the third consecutive quarter of earnings being down slightly for the S&P 500. That's the bad news. I'd say that the better news is that earnings will probably uh, be down only in the 5% range, and that's consistent with the last couple of quarters. The trend of forward-looking earnings revisions has improved, and that if you sort of dig in within this quarter's numbers, energy earnings are the biggest drag on the aggregate index. So, you know, considering what we talked about before with, you know, the more difficult comparisons for the energy sector, if you strip out energy, S&P earnings are likely to be pretty close to flat or maybe even slightly positive this quarter. Um, in terms of the banks, which, you know, we've seen a disproportionate, you know, uh, number of banks report relative to other sectors. They tend to report early in reporting season. We've generally seen, you know, mixed to favorable results uh, and positive stock price reactions since the big banks started reporting earnings last Friday. I would say the broad theme around the banks would be that, you know, we are seeing funding costs 
rise, you know, interest rates are rising, and consumers are shifting from non-interest-bearing deposits to you know higher-yielding deposits. But you know, deposit levels at the largest universal banks have been largely stable. Capital market activity is, is, has been you know weak, but maybe not as weak as management has guided to in, in recent conferences. And some companies are starting to say that they're seeing some green shoots in their pipelines. You know, credit is worsening, but again, most management teams are saying that this is more of a normalization rather than something more ominous. So overall, you know, sort of more of the same things are on the margin, you know, not great, but not as bad perhaps as, as feared, considering that the banks, as I mentioned, and financials have lagged the broader market pretty significantly this year. And I would say that you know, that especially for the larger, better capitalized banks, you know, we haven't had any real, you know, negative macro signals that would make us more, you know, more worried about potential hard landing. All of that being said, you know, more than half of the S&P 500 companies report over the next uh, two or three weeks. So we'll have a lot more to say on earnings next month in our call. Sounds good. I'll keep that in mind for a question for next month. Jeremy, as always, thank you for your insight. Thank you all for joining us today for House Call. Well, thank you, Dom and Jeremy, for joining us for another episode of House Call, talking equity markets with UBS Asset Management. We do look forward to next time and hope you will continue to tune in to this series on a monthly basis. For our clients of UBS listening in, if you do have any follow-up questions based on what you've heard today from the team, please be sure to contact your UBS financial advisor. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. It does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any specific product or service. UBS does not provide legal or tax advice, and we would recommend listeners to obtain appropriate independent professional advice. Some of the views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Group AG or its affiliates. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. These services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS Group AG and is a member of FINRA and SIPC.